Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. It will look familiar to you. This is Matthew's version of the triumphal entry. We've already read Mark's version. This will be Matthew's version. Many different types of people from different walks of life can be considered kings or can go by the name king. Sometimes they are people who stand for something. Sometimes they are people who uh, are named in that way. We think of uh, King Arthur. We think of Martin Luther King Jr., civil rights leader. We think of Stephen King, the novelist, or Carol King, the musician, or B.B. King, the guitarist, or the Los Angeles Kings hockey. But today, we're going to read about the King of Kings. Matthew chapter 21, beginning with verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks in the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for the freedom to read your word. And we're thankful for what you do in our hearts, even through the simple but profound reading of your word. Lord, we can't read it sincerely without being affected positively. And we're grateful for the opportunity to read this passage today. Lord, Jerusalem received you that day. May we receive you this day. And may we receive you for who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. The year is A.D. 30. A.D. 30. I choose that year because that is the only year in Jesus' adult life in which Passover fell on a Friday. And the scriptures, the gospels, tell us that Jesus died on a Friday. That was the Passover day. In order for that to be specifically true, then it had to be the year A.D. 30. Friday. The Sunday before that Friday is the one that Matthew and earlier Mark described for us. 
It is the day that begins this, this wonderful week of Passover week that includes the day of Passover on Friday. Hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world will journey to Jerusalem and they will be there for, be there for this feast. And here's Jesus. He is marching in, riding on a donkey through the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was a walled city, a fortress city. There was a gate to the north, there was a gate to the south, a gate to the east, and a gate to the west. Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Olives through the the, uh, Kidron River Valley, which is a dry river, back up the hill of Mount Zion, and he's going to enter the eastern gate of Jerusalem. We call it the triumphant entry of Christ. There were some people who, in order to put a makeshift red carpet, they threw their coats in the road, not minding if Jesus' donkey rode over those coats. Others who didn't have coats clipped off palm branches and strode them in the road. And they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. It was a procession. It was a parade. It was full of of, uh, rejoicing and excitement and anticipation. Some people were curious. Who is this? He's Jesus from Nazareth, the prophet that we have heard about. His was not the only procession coming into Jerusalem that day. The gospel writers don't mention another procession, but there was one. For you see, every time there was a Jewish festival like Passover or Pentecost or Feast of Tabernacles, where hundreds of thousands of Jews would come to Jerusalem, every single time that happened, the Roman Empire was concerned. They were concerned because anytime you got a large number of Jews together, they were afraid that they would incite a rebellion against Rome. And so, even though they had a small contingent of soldiers in the Antonio Fortress near the Temple Mount, those, that small battalion was not nearly enough to tackle a big crowd. And so the Roman Empire would send a large cavalry of reinforcements. Those reinforcements normally stayed at Caesarea, Caesarea on the sea. It was a Roman walled city that was on the Mediterranean coast. It's where a fellow lived by the name of, you remember him, you know him, Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the procurator of Judea and two other regions there in what we now call the Holy Land. But Pilate stayed in Caesarea with this large contingent of Roman soldiers. But before the feast started, they headed out from Caesarea in these big horses. They looked like Clydesdales that had been working out every day for six months. And they wore metal armor. And you could hear the leather screeching back and forth and back and forth as these horses made their march in perfect step because they've been practicing it for weeks. And they arrive at Jerusalem. But they don't go through the eastern gate. They come through the western gate. So imagine this, if you will. At about the same time Jesus is entering the eastern gate on a donkey, Pilate, And a large contingent of soldiers is entering in on the western gate. And suddenly, everybody in Jerusalem has a choice to make. Which kingdom will you 
follow? Will you follow the Roman imperial kingdom with its imperial theology? Are you familiar with, Roman, with the Roman imperial theology, by the way? Every emperor of Rome, every Roman emperor believed that he was the Son of God. And so you have on the eastern gate, riding on a donkey, Jesus, the Son of God. And on the other side, you have Pilate coming through with his cavalry by the authority of the emperor who called himself the Son of God. Which kingdom were they to follow? It seems like a pretty cut and dried decision. Either Jesus and his kingdom or Pilate and his kingdom. But it wasn't nearly, nearly that simple. Because there were people who, though they would say, if we were to ask them, I'm following Jesus and his kingdom, they had a totally twisted idea of what his kingdom would be. Choice is not uh, a rare thing in Scripture. There are times after times after times throughout the Old and New Testament where God's people and the people who are not God's people are confronted with a choice to make. I remember uh, Joshua in the book of Joshua when he stood uh, in the land of Canaan and he told the Israelites, he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell or the gods of our forefathers who lived on the other side of the river. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They were confronted with a choice in Second Chronicles while God was speaking to Solomon in response to that wonderful request that Solomon made to give him wisdom. God, just give me wisdom. I'm not big enough to govern so great a people. And in that, that essay that God presented to Solomon, among other things, he says in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, he says, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek their face and turn from their wicked ways, I will then hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, I will heal their land. They had a choice to make. I hear Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 as part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, there lies before you a broad gate and a narrow gate. Most people in this world, he says, try to go through the broad gate. There are many who try to go in that way. But he said, there are just a few who will go through the narrow gate, the hard gate. And he said, that is the way that leads to eternal life. They had a choice to make. The writer of Proverbs in the Old Testament put it this way on one, on one place. He says this, he says, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the, way, the end thereof are the ways of death. They had a choice to make throughout the scriptures. You and I are no different. We stand on this Palm Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday with a decision to make. We stand on this Palm Sunday, Sunday with choices confronting us. And we must make a decision about which kingdom we will follow. And we too have a difficult decision. It's not like we have the Roman soldiers coming in the, my, the door to the right and Jesus coming into the door to my left and we have to choose between Rome and Jesus. That's not quite it. What we have to choose from, rather, are different opinions as to what kind of kingdom Jesus was to bring. 
And I'm amazed that when you analyze the people in Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, you can, categor- you can categorize them in groups that are just as prevalent in the United States today. Which kingdom will we follow? The arrival of which king? Which king will be the one that will be ours? There were many people in Jerusalem that day who were looking for a king of political power. And even though they weren't up there watching the western gate to see Pilate come come through, they were watching Jesus, but they expected Jesus, this man who's coming in on a donkey, to be a king of political power. They expected him to come in, take over the government, uproot Rome, and and bring in the kingdom of God through political means. It was widely believed. In fact, there's a good possibility that Judas Iscariot was among the disciples of the Lord who believed, and then later was disappointed by the fact that, who believed that Jesus would be coming in as a political king. Simon the Zealot, another disciple of Jesus. He was a zealot for political upheaval. He thought that Jesus would bring in a kingdom that was political. They were wrong. I'm amazed by the number of people in America today who believe that the kingdom of God will be brought into place through political decisions. Let me ask you something. Is the church so weak today that we have to depend on Congress to bring the kingdom of God in? God help us. The kingdom of God will not come through legislation of a state legislature. It will not come through an act of Congress. It will not come through the executive order of a person in the White House. It's got to come through God's people, the church. But I see a lot of us in the church who think that it's going to have to come through political means. You hear it sometimes. They talk about, well, we need to take our country back for God. We need to get prayer back in the schools. Do we really? Sounds good, doesn't it? Except for the fact that it never did any good. At the time when there was more prayer and Bible reading going on in public schools than at any other time in our country, we had slaves. At a time when we were praying more at the beginning of every classroom in public schools in the southeast, and nobody did it more in the southeast, we were the most uh, racially discriminating population. Prayer didn't do a whole lot of good there. You can't bring the kingdom of God through government. I'll tell you what we need more of. We need more prayer and Bible reading at home. You know where prayer got out of school, by the way. Some folks, most of us probably here don't know. Some of us will stand up and say, well, I think it was Madeline Murray O'Hare, that atheist who took prayer at school. No, it actually wasn't. At New Hyde Park School... In New Hyde Park, New York, which is on Long Island, New York, the government in that state had 
issued a very short non-denominational prayer for schools to use at the opening of their class time on a voluntary basis. But at New Hyde Park School, the school board instructed the principal that the prayer would be mandatory. And a suit was filed. Ladies and gentlemen, it wasn't Madeline Murray O'Hare. It was Christians who insisted on a Christian prayer be prayed in the school. We did that. We did that. And anybody who tells you otherwise doesn't know American history. Shouldn't the United States be a Christian nation? Shouldn't our government legislate, codify that the United States is a Christian nation? Boy, that sounds good. There are a number of reasons why it's not a good idea. Number one, it has never worked in the history of humankind. Ladies and gentlemen, you go back through all of history. Any state that, uh, that voted in a state religion, whether it was uh, Islam or Christianity or Hinduism or whatever you want to make, it never has been effective. Even in the Old Testament Israel, they were a theocracy, and then they were a theocracy with a king, a human king under the theocracy, never did work. Never worked. The only kingdom of God coming in a nation, it must come in a free church, in a free state, with people having the freedom to make the decision in and of themselves without coercion. That's the only way. Jesus did not come as a political king. We said, well, weren't the founding fathers? Didn't they want the United States to be a codified Christian nation. That's what Roy Moore said of Alabama. At the Constitutional Convention in 1787, there were 55 delegates present. 51 of them were Christians, devout Christians. Now think about that, 51 of 55. What that means is that if they had voted as a block, they could have voted in anything they wanted anything, including Christianity being the state religion. They could have done that. With 51 out of 55 votes, ladies and gentlemen, that's more than a supermajority. They could have done it. The question is, why didn't they do it? Our Constitution doesn't even mention religion or God. The Declaration of Independence, which came in 1776 by the same founding fathers, mentions God twice. One time it is uh, endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Later on it says nature and nature's God, but it nowhere specifically mentions or identifies any particular religion. They could have. Why didn't they? The answer? They knew better. Those 51 of 55 Christians who signed that constitutional charter, they were, they were less than two generations removed from being in England. And what was England? What was their government? It was a, it was a government where Christianity was the state religion. They knew what it was like. They knew what it was like when religion controls the state. And let me tell you what it was like. They weren't free to worship. 
Paul, uh, John Smith was the first man to start a Baptist church in, in the world. He was a British man, and it was illegal for him to start a Baptist church in England where Christianity was the state church. He had to leave and go to Denmark to start the first Baptist church in, in the world. One of his colleagues, Thomas Helwey, says, the heck with that, I'm going back to England to start a Baptist church. And that's exactly what he did. And guess what? King James, or the King James Version, put him in prison where he died. Our founding fathers remembered that. They didn't want that for the new country. I'll tell you another reason why they didn't make Christianity the state church. Of those 51 delegates, they, they, were, they, made, they, were, uh, they came from eight different Christian denominations. They couldn't make up their mind which brand of Christianity to put in force. And so they didn't. Occasionally I run into folks who feel like we need to push Congress and the president and whoever else is in authority to make the United States a Christian nation. What we need to do is push our Congress and our president and our legislatures to keep America a free country. Because the moment we make it a state religion in America, I want you to get this. Whatever religion rules a government and rules a nation, and every, na every religion has denominations within it, Christianity is no different. Anytime you have a religion that runs a state, whatever is the majority denomination within that religion controls the policy decisions within that religious framework. So let's assume that the United States becomes a Christian nation because Congress and the president voted in. Who do you think is going to control the policy? Do you think it's going to be Southern Baptists? We are the largest Protestant uh, denomination. We're the largest non-Catholic denomination in the, in the United States. We have about 19 million Baptists, Southern Baptists. Now, the CIA can't find but 43 of them, but just lay that aside. There are 19 million of us. Would we control the policy if the U.S. became a state? No. You know what the largest Christian denomination is in America? There are 70 million Roman Catholics in the United States of America. My question for you, and especially for those of you who would like for the United States to have a state church is, is that the kind of Christianity you want running your, your nation? We've got to think about what we're asking for. A free church in a free state is what is required for Christianity to thrive. There were people who expected Jesus to be a political power king. And he disappointed them because he wasn't the Messiah they expected. He was not like them. Then there were those who expected a king of revolution and violence. Let's take Rome by violence, by terrorism. There were plenty of people who were like this. There was one particular guy whose name also was Jesus, who was among the violence people, wanted to take, take the Roman Empire by violence and revolution. His name was Jesus Barabbas. 
Matthew chapter 27 tells the story. Let me just read it for you. This is not on the slide. Listen to this. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. You know what Barabbas means, by the way? Barabbas, the word means son of the father. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? It was really a choice between Jesus, the son of the father, or Jesus, the son of the father. So which one did they choose? Pilate knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat. His wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. I've suffered a great deal in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Give us Barabbas. Why? Because they wanted a Jesus who was a revolutionary terrorist. And Jesus, who was the Messiah, was not what they expected. He was not like them. Some people expected a king of religious rules. Do this. Don't do that. Can't you read the sign? There are people today who it's not enough really to accept Christ by faith and just follow him in a relationship. You have to follow this. Do a whole list of do this and don't do these if you really are a real Christian. And it all sounds good. It sounds morally upright and all that kind of stuff, except for the fact that Jesus was about a relationship, not regulations. A relationship and not rules. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. With whom did he have the most problem? Pharisees and Sadducees who insisted on the following of rules. Occasionally I have people come to me, they say, oh, we should preach on sin more. And I probably ought to. I try to preach on sin a lot, but I'll tell you, if I was really preaching on sin as much as I probably ought to, the specific sin that I would preach about more than any is the one Jesus preached against. And in case you don't know what that is, you probably do, but here's what it is. He preached against the self-righteousness of religious people more than any other sin. In fact, the sins that most people want their preachers to preach against today, Jesus never touched. Jesus was not the king they expected. He was not like them. And then there were those who were looking for a king of convenience and expedience. I believe a lot of the people who, who invited Jesus in through that eastern gate are, are among this group here. They, they, they wanted a king of, of convenience and expedience. In other words, uh, we want a king that we can use whenever we need him. And if we don't need him, we'd kind of like for him to stay out of our business. 
in many of our songs and some sermons and Sunday school lessons, you'll, you'll hear something like this, that the people who uh, praised Jesus and sang Hosanna on Sunday were the same ones who cursed him on Friday and said, crucify him on Friday. That may have happened, although the Gospels technically do not tell us that. We don't know that for sure. I'll tell you what we can deduce from this Gospels, though. Those folks that said Hosanna and praised the Lord on Sunday were either nowhere to be found on Friday, or if they were there, they were suspiciously silent on Friday. They expected a convenient Jesus and didn't realize that they were getting a dangerous Jesus. I read something recently that I totally agree with. An author said this, Jesus is the most dangerous man who has ever lived. He is. He will turn your life upside down. He'll pull you out of your little metal boxes and he'll put you in a place of unfamiliarity and discomfort and he'll tell you to follow him in the midst of the struggle. That's pretty dangerous. Jesus, I'd like to follow you when I need you. If I'm in a crisis, before I eat, I'd like to... I'd like for you to be around so I can talk to you just briefly, no more than 15 seconds or so. And then I'd like for you to go into the closet while I finish eating. A Jesus of convenience and expedience. There were people there who were looking for that. But listen, Jesus, the Messiah, the true Messiah, wasn't what they were looking for. He was not them. He wasn't a political king. He wasn't a a violent revolutionary king. He wasn't a rules and regulation king. And he wasn't a convenience and expedience king. So what was he? He was the true king. The true king did not reign through political prowess. The true king did not rise to the throne through military power or violence. The true king was constantly fighting against uh, strict adherence to rules. The true king demands to be lord of your whole life and is not is not pleased with just being a spare tire in the trunk when you need it. So it's amazing to me how much like the people in Jerusalem on that day you and I are today. It's a matter of which kingdom are you looking to follow? Is it a political king? Don't look for Jesus. Is it a violent king? Jesus is not your man. If it is do this, don't do that, can't you read the sign? You need to find somebody else with a different name. If it's let me have you when I need you or when I want you, but otherwise stay out of the way, again, you're going to have to look for a king by a different name. The king who rolled into Jerusalem rolled in with not, not a great deal of fanfare, very unpretentious, riding on a donkey. He didn't come in on a Rolls Royce. He came in on a 1950 VW that needed more oil in it. So this is the question of Palm Sunday. Which king will you follow? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, please open up our eyes to who you really are.
open up our eyes to what kind of king you were then and you are today. Lord, help us to throw away our presuppositions. Help us to throw away what the pundits have told us and help us to look at your word and see exactly what kind of king you were. And help us to follow the true king. Not political, not revolutionary, not legalist, not apathetic. Just true. Lord, I pray for people in this room right now who need to come and make the decision to receive Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of their life. I pray for Christians who've already made that decision, are already saved, but there's something in their lives that they need to deal with. I pray for people who need a church to join. But Lord, whether we make our decision here in this invitation or if it's after we leave, Lord, help us to know that we are forced to make a decision. In Jesus' name, amen.